Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Good morning. My name is Leslie Thompson, and I'm Director of Workplace Strategy for Quartet North America. Thank you for joining us today on The Great Indoors for this multiple, multiple disciplinary webinar and panel discussion on the topic of belonging in the workplace. In the wake of the pandemic, we are all more aware than ever of the different needs of the workplace, and it's our opportunity to reset. So today, our speakers will explore what stands in the way of making everyone feel like they belong. I'm delighted to welcome our speakers and panelists. First up, we have Richard Bateman, inclusion and diversity author and consultant. With over 20 years experience as an HR executive in global Fortune 100 companies, Richard specializes in supporting leaders and their teams to create thriving, resilient workplaces, and was most recently at Rolls-Royce, prior to that, AstraZeneca and Deloitte. Richard published his first book in 2020, the Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Playbook. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Mike O'Neill, author and founder of Human Space. Dr. Mike is an author and strategist who specializes in how to use workplace design to reduce stress and improve, improve workforce performance. He founded Human Space to help businesses identify the workplace capabilities that are most important to employee well-being. Dr. Mike is also a co-author of The Healthy Workplace Nudge. And finally, Priya Monahan, architect, research analyst, and designer at Hayworth. Priya is an architect specializing in translating organizational needs, culture, and business vision into tangible strategy. She takes a pragmatic approach and helps organizations use design to drive belonging in the workplace. Richard will open today's session and explore the area of unconscious bias with some examples of how that plays into the workplace. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Mike, who will consider workplace legibility. How easy is it to understand and navigate a space and why that matters? And finally, Priya will explore the risks of moving too fast and why the A&D community needs to consider using frameworks to ensure that they bridge the gap between intent and impact. But before I hand this over to Richard to kickstart our, our session, I wanted to remind you to submit your questions in the Q&A. Thank you, Leslie, and hello, everyone. It's great to be here today. Um, so I just wanted to, to open up today's um, seminar by just sharing a few thoughts on why inclusion, equity, diversity matter in, in today's business world. I'm sure you all have you know, your own thoughts and, and, uh, and insights into that question. But for me, um, just even over the last 12 months, this whole subject of, of, of EDI has become an increasingly central, core and critical part of you know, any workforce strategy for, for, for any organisation. Building a culture of inclusion matters. It's critical to business success. It's critical to sustainable business success. Maybe if you just think about what's happening in our teams, we know that... Um, through the research that's been done into into team high performing teamwork um, that what we get by return when teams are led inclusively uh, when they're led inclusively there's an uptick in innovation and in creativity in team collaboration and overall there's an uptick in performance through the the, the, the increased quality of decision making that comes through there those are things that really matter to any organization um, especially 
in today's increasingly volatile and challenging times, when uncertainty is just around the corner and agility, the ability to respond quickly to what's around us matters. Uh, and alongside this whole notion of the business case being so important for performance, there is a, a, an added element of the importance of having um, an organization which is attractive to people. I wanna come and work here because I feel included. I feel be I belong, I feel my contribu contribution is valued and I feel respected. That matters increasingly today. And as a younger generation of workforce comes into play uh, in, 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 in our organizations, that is gonna become even more of a, of a critical factor in the war for talent. So all of these things matter. Employee engagement is a crucial part of that as well. But to cultivate this sense of inclusion, um, there's a whole host of things that are needed here is a multifaceted approach. And the work I've done with organizations and learning from, from, from organizations has taught me the criticality of this multifaceted approach is, is really what matters. It isn't just about what the HR team can do or how good your DNI EDI policies are. To be credible, it really needs to be there, present and being lived and breathed by leadership, but also by everybody having an accountability, a sense of responsibility and purpose for inclusion and belonging to be at the forefront. And often a useful starting point for any organization that you know, I get involved with or I work with is about just exploring um, one element of what's around us in our lives, not just in our organizational life, about um, you know, our, our implicit biases that we have, the things that we make assumptions about around us, because that can be a really helpful cue for understanding what's going on with others that can help us then to make choices about how we can be even more inclusive with one another. And I just wanted to share with you a couple of examples here of, um, of questions that I use from time to time to have a bit of fun with, with, with leadership teams and with, with frontline teams when we're beginning to explore this. So what about me? How do I choose to view the world? How do I choose to view uh, this question of inclusion and belonging? And um, I'd just like to share those with you now, please. I'm gonna just put this onto the share screen. So I'm just going to share with you uh, a question that I have, a couple of questions or scenarios, and just take a look at these, and I'll I'll, I'll read them out if in case um in case you need to just have a chance to to let these sink in. So first one is when YouTube launched the video upload feature for their app, five percent five to ten percent of the videos that were uploaded were uploaded upside down, and the YouTube app developers were baffled. How could such a large percentage of users be shooting their videos incorrectly? So that's the first one. Have a think about why that might be, what's going on there. And then the second one is, two judo competitors take a bow and the match begins. One is wearing a brown belt and the other a black belt. After a long tussle, the black belter has the most points and is declared the winner, even though during the entire contest, no man threw the other to the ground. How can this be? So I'll give you a moment just to think about those two things. And then is the reveal to the answers to both of these questions. First one, with the YouTube app, how was it upside down? How were these videos being shot incorrectly? Reason was because the app, the app developers, had designed the app for right-hand users only. If you're a left-hand user shooting and uploading your video, it was going to end up appearing upside down. So there was an unconscious bias in the app development process and the design process 
that I, I, I created this flaw. It wasn't about people shooting the videos correctly. It was in the design flaw. And then with the second one on the judo competitors, both players are women. Just because no man was thrown to the ground doesn't mean that there was any contestant thrown to the ground. And they could have thrown each other many times to the ground. The criticality here is the blind spot potentially for us on no man. So just uh, I wanted one or two small examples of how implicit bias can work in a workplace. And that can play through time after time after time in small ways, but these things grow into large things over time about people can feel either having not had the attention paid to them, excluded, not noticed, or behavior can be treated in, in, a, in a blind spot type of way. So it's really important that we tune into our unconscious biases here, our implicit biases, because we all have them, but knowing that we have them is a way of helping us to overcome them. And this really helps with belonging, understanding where our blind spots might be, because it's a complex process of understanding what these are about. But nonetheless, with some simple kind of self-awareness, we can begin to work our way through this and help us to understand what is going to work around a sense of belonging. So I'll just leave you with a, with a couple of questions to think about as you explore how can, how can you create an even greater sense of belonging and inclusion in your teams. So firstly, ask yourself, before you ask anybody else, ask yourself a few circuit searching questions about your own experience of inclusion and belonging in your workplace today or in previous, uh, previous organizations that you might have worked for. And think about a time when you felt an absence of belonging. What happened? What did it feel like? And what was the outcome for you and for others? And how about when you had a strong sense of belonging? Similarly, what was that like? What were others doing to help you with that? And what was the, what was the impact on you and on others? And what lessons can you learn from that? that you could, can you draw from that around the choices and decisions you made that could help you to think about how you can lead even more effectively for belonging in the workplace? Because all of this will have an impact on your choices around how you choose to create the workspace that's going to best suit and fit the sense of belonging and engagement that you're looking for. So I'll just leave you with those thoughts and then pass back over to Leslie for the next part of the, of the seminar. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. That's really interesting. And as a lefty, I can attest to the many workarounds that I have dealt with my entire life. Again, please don't forget to post your questions in the Q&A. And without further ado, we'll have Dr. Mike take it away. Okay, thanks, Leslie. And um, I just think it's so interesting because many of the concepts that Richard's talking about that have to do with uh, policy and organizational design and so forth, um, you know, that are around trying to increase inclusion. Uh, we sort of are running in a parallel track, but we're thinking about how can we use uh, workplace, the office workspace, that overall experience, how can we leverage the design of that to increase inclusion and engagement and well-being? And this has been an area I've been looking at for many years and working with clients and doing research. And so in this work, uh, we've uh, been really exploring two aspects of design. The first is legible design, and the second is user control. And uh, I want to talk a bit more about the legible design part. Um, we really think that legible design can be central to enhancing workforce inclusion and, and, and well-being and so forth. And also it's related, uh, legible design is related to stress reduction. So uh, what is legible design? 
it's really, you can think about it as a sort of a language of design. It's another way of giving people better access to all the resources within a workplace. So an illegible space can be experienced in several ways. Let's say you go into an, an office building and the floor plan layout is really complicated and it's kind of confusing and, and you can't really orient yourself or find your way through very easily. Or maybe it also has poor visual access, so you can't even really see through the spaces. It's just hallways. You don't know where you are. You can't see outside to any landmarks. So a space like that, uh, fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, you can't navigate. You can't access the resources that you need uh, very easily. You can't find the people you need or the other sorts of resources. Or maybe there's spaces that you walk into that might be some sort of a group space and you can't really understand what its intended use is. You don't know what the right behaviors are. Is that totally a casual space or is that a space that I can work in or what's that gonna look like? So all these little things about the way a space is designed kind of can add up to being uh, either legible. And in other words, it has a language and an understanding that a broad range of people can understand and feel comfortable using or maybe it's not so legible and there's a narrower slice of people who can walk into it and they kind of get it, they get the secret handshake of what the spaces are intended to, to do. And I wanna give you a little example about this, um, about the home, people's homes. So um, I think that there is, uh, uh, I think in most cases, homes are very legible spaces. So you could have a friend that invites you over to their house. You've never been there before. And you come to the door at the appointed hour and uh, they greet you and you come in and you know pretty much exactly how to act. You know that they'll probably invite you into the kitchen. You know that that's where a lot of social interaction will happen. You'll watch food being made. Maybe you'll go over to the living room and so forth. And, and you, you feel very comfortable because even though you've never seen that space before, you know how to act. It's, it's conveying a language to you that you feel comfortable with. You know that you're probably not gonna walk down the hallway and go into a bedroom. You just already know the rules for how to behave there. So you can, you can interact and function in there very successfully and you can feel included and you can feel really good about the whole experience. And I would say that what we're searching for at, at its highest level is, is there an archetype or a fundamental truth about what can make a legible space? An archetype is like, like a framework for thinking about a space and if there's a legible archetype, we could find, we could have sort of a, a roadmap or a framework that we could make any kind of space legible, whether it was a home or an office space or a religious space or a healthcare space. So that's, that's what we're really searching for is this idea of, of um, having a bigger idea about legibility because it's so, such a powerful idea that we think can drive inclusion, reduce stress, make people, you know, give better well-being. So um, if we apply this idea, let, let's say you're an office worker. Let's say you're the first person in your family to go to college. So you haven't had uh, role models in your parents uh, or, or other family members that um, have, have been professional workers and have gone into an office. You can kind of guess at how you're supposed to act and you can guess at how to use the spaces and you're nervous and you want to fit in. Now I've got to ask you, was the space designed by people who look like you? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you don't have a shared experience. So that's just another idea of how legible space can make people who are not a part of the, the main workforce um, 
be more comfortable coming in. And sure, can, can you figure it out in the long run? Sure, you can watch people carefully. You can see how they're acting. You can see how they're using the spaces. But wouldn't it be a lot easier just to have space that already that, that, can, that is legible and understandable to a much broader range of people? I, I think so. And we believe that uh, that's the way we should go. And so um, we also have this other big idea of user control. And I've been studying that for years. And we've got a lot of evidence to say that if you give people control over their environment, so let's say it's the, the micro environment, which is at their desk, and you have uh, monitor arms, and you can adjust the seating, and you can kind of rearrange the space to suit your work process. That's also uh, related to better inclusion, and it's related to lower stress. And control can also be expanded to that macro environment. Uh, can I choose? Do I have control over choosing where and when I, I want to work? And uh, so that's another aspect uh, of, of control that is related, I think, to better, uh, to better inclusion and, and to you know, providing a more a healthy and more equitable work experience. And I guess the other thing I'd like to put in there is that all these ideas that, you know, that Richard is talking about and that, that I'm talking about, um, and especially with workplace, if you're trying to create a workplace that is, in, is inclusive and is legible, that is a resource that everybody can access as long as they're in the building. It's a very democratic and a very equitable approach to providing inclusion. If you're in the building and the building is helping you feel included, you're getting that benefit and that resource. And that's another reason I think it's so very important to be thinking about these ideas of legibility and, and user control and implementing them into the spaces that we're developing. So um, my takeaways would be, think about legibility, think about creating spaces that are speaking equally um, to everybody. And, and it ties directly into the second example that Richard gave uh, where, um, you know, people were, they were designing because they assumed everybody was right-handed. I mean, that's a, just a great example. Um, think about providing user control and choice. But also, I think the bigger idea that we can really gain some traction on is that can we leverage existing, in, along with existing inclusion programs to provide a more integrative, inclusive workplace and workforce experience? I mean, to me, that would be like the North Star that should be guiding all of this. So those are my thoughts. And what I'd like to do is hand it off um, to, to Priya, who's been working on some wonderful design ideas, kind of concepts that um, look at translating legibility and control. And, and um, I, so I'll just hand it off to her. Yeah, I, thank you, Dr. Mike and, and Richard. Both both of your points actually kind of run very similar to what um, I kind of want to talk about. I want to um, show some visuals, but I also want to build up a narrative of what I'm talking about. One of the first points that I want to pick up on is intent versus impact. And it's related to something Dr. Mike was just talking about. And the thing is, what we've no noticed over many years of consulting is that people love to jump into strategy. I mean, we get it, it's a fast-paced world and we want to create solutions right away. But moving quickly is one of the um, greatest culprits for mistakes. And I guess we've had a pandemic so we can afford to slow down because we've had to slow down. So we can see how that intent necessarily doesn't really translate into impact. And this is, this is the space between intent and impact that we all sit in as designers, strategists, that's how you say it. Yeah, strategists, researchers, 
with HR, all of us that are having this conversation are really sitting under this umbrella and trying to translate our intents into impact. I just kind of want to give you some um, example of how um, this translation can kind of go wrong. Um, so this gap between intent and impact, like for example, um, there was um, an organization which was trying to help uh, fund um, sort of women. It was just for women entrepreneurs. And what they were trying to do is help them um, uh, fund their businesses. And of course, when you think you're helping women entrepreneurs, um, you want the women who need it to get it. But um, research, through research, they just realized that uh, the women who actually are getting it are not the women who need it. And this was because the targeted audience was um, networking white women who were educated, were middle class, and had all of these opportunities and access to all the resources, which is not to say that they didn't need it, but the women who were the, the up and coming industry of entrepreneurs uh, was um, sort of low income. Um, from different races, immigrants that lived in the in the country that I'm talking about uh, as an example. So they didn't really get it. And this was because of the sort of, um, I guess, the bias that Richard was talking about and how policies and strategies were not in place in the right way. So really, I think that we should take a step back. And this particular um, diagram is where I'm trying to understand how you have a target uh, community and then you have uh, a community that is the source and how the target community and the source can be two different things. And really, even when you're tra targeting, in this particular example, women, you're not targeting the women who actually need it. Um, and this can, this can be a big uh, bias without actually realizing. So your intent was in the right place, but your impact hasn't, has been misplaced. And how do you bridge this gap? Is I would really like to say um, that we need frameworks in place so there's a book uh, by, I think, Atul Gawande. It's called, um, it's called Policies and Frameworks or something, something like that. You can look it up quite straightforward. And he talks about, he's a surgeon, and he talks about how surgeons need a sort of pilot, uh, pilot's framework. So pilots have a really regimented tactical framework of how to land and take off. Not that they don't know how to do it, but it's such a high-risk job that even though they know they know it, they have a framework they follow through. And um, Atul talks about how surgeons should have this as well. Just, I know that they're specialized in their field, but just having this sort of framework will allow them to go through the process um, without actually making any mistakes. And I think as um, um, strategists or researchers or designers or any, any part that we play, um, in designing for diversity and inclusivity, we really need to have um, a framework which allows us to kind of bridge between your intent and impact. And that's kind of like a closing image of, I just want to talk about how, um, I know that diversity is really just uh, sometimes just seen as a difference in race or gender, but it's also a difference in just thought process. And I know that for a fact that I needed a diverse and you know, inclusive space because I couldn't work in the office just like everyone else did. They had had probably 10, 20 years of training to work at a, the same workstation that you know, had no other options. But I came from you know, doing design projects in a studio at my house, at a friend's place, in a, a restaurant, over a drink, and so many different ways. And then to go and reduce it to one desk was really impossible. 
it's just as simple as allowing people to have the option of what they want to work at and how they want to work um, and supporting all kinds of um, diversity is I think uh, going to be a really phenomenal um, or an Herculean task that will come across after the pandemic. Um, not just to think, just as a closing point, I just want to uh, bring up this um, saying that uh, Le Corbusier, um, uh, not, not a saying, a quote actually, he said, hygiene and moral health depend on the layout of cities. And without hygiene and moral health, the social cell becomes um, atro atrophied. And this social cell that he's talking about is so many different social cells we have in a, a city and the office or the workspace is one of these social cells. And without having this kind of moral health um, and hygiene, and hopefully we all can navigate the hygiene part of it much easier now that we've had many years of experience with this moral health is really key for diversity and inclusion. And if we don't have that, it this, this uh, cell called office is a really, dead um unsociable place and i hope that's not what becomes of it thank you priya richard and dr mike um that was very thought-provoking and interesting and i am really excited about finding out how we move forward from here and how we can make the workplace more inclusive from all perspectives um, so let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming through um, first one is for Richard. Can you give us some examples of how unconscious bias plays out in the workplace, please? Sure, thanks, thanks, Leslie, and, and hello again, everyone. Um, so unconscious bias shows up in all kinds of different and subtle ways. And, and we, I, I think the first thing to point out and to emphasize is that we all carry unconscious biases. The, the, the key is to know that we have them and to, and to be ready to check them. And so some examples of how implicit or unconscious biases might show up in the workplace might be simple things um, such as designing a workspace that doesn't take account of some of our neurodiverse uh, teammates, colleagues, uh, resulting in you know, some real difficulty around setting up hot desk and arrangements. It could be um, assumptions we might make about a new mom returning to work and thinking, oh, well, she may not be ready for a high profile project that requires her to work away from home. Um, and no assumptions have been made or, or assumptions sorry, have been made about home circumstances that could be entirely wrong. Um, and it could also mean things like, um, you know, best ways of socializing as a team is Thursday night at the local bar. Um, whereas, you know, there could be all kinds of different ways and more appropriate ways for the team to get to know one another better that uh, doesn't involve kind of the usual way of doing things. So it's, it's checking when we're running on autopilot and, and just saying, okay, what are the different ways that we could do this? Um, that, that enables even more inclusion and, and, and helps to engender a better sense of belonging uh, for everyone in the team. Great. Dr. Mike, how do you feel unconscious bias shows up in workplace design? Yeah, uh, workplace design is a, is a funny creature. Office design, is, it's a very odd situation because people who you've never met, um, architects, architects and interior designers, uh, design a space that you sit in all day, you spend the best years of your life in, in these spaces that you had no, no input or feedback on how, how you needed that space to be. So they're designed by people that, that don't know you. And furthermore, most 
architecture and interior design, at least in North America, and I think a lot of Europe, is done by upper middle class white professionals. And that is just the way it is, and that's changing, of course, but designers come in and design places uh, assuming a set of norms, assuming a shared understanding of behaviors, assuming a shared background. And, uh, and that then that creates spaces that um, don't necessarily speak to a wider range of people. So I think that the challenge for any designer would be to dialogue with people who, who aren't like you, uh, look at your design through a different lens, assume different life experiences by the people that you're designing the spaces for. I mean, this is just some challenges I think that, that, that uh, can be, can be uh, looked at. And, or maybe imagine that you're in a foreign country where you don't speak or read the language and look at the space that you've designed. Could you figure out how to use that space if you didn't have that kind of shared, shared background and understanding? So I think it's, it's a problem, uh, I, but I also think it's, you know, the positive part is that it's, it's an exciting challenge to broaden the way we think about designing office workplace. Great, which is kind of a perfect segue to this question, which has come in for Priya. What are some of the unintended consequences of not being inclusive in the design process? Right, so I'm going to give you an example um, for unintended design bias. Um, for example, when Kodak uh, was developing, uh, not developing, they were creating film. Uh, for most of the beginning of photography era, we always use Kodak film. And I'm not sure if everyone is aware, but the um, ideal skin tone they used for their photography uh, equipment was based on uh, just an algorithm for white people. So if you were of any other color than white, you wouldn't really show up. And that was so quite a while ago, but still we have, we're facing a similar problem. For example, self-driving cars were designed um, in such a way that they failed to detect dark-skinned pedestrians completely. And why are we failing to incorporate people that are different? And why is just one uh, type of person given you know, the majority of interest uh, while designing products or, you know, um, architecture or anything at all. And this is just some of the like dramatic examples where we fail. And um, just to kind of bridge uh, between what, you know, unconscious bias, gender bias um, also leads to uh, mental and thought process bias is there are people with, um, well, there was a project that Dr. Mike, um, I know that has been working on with for veterans and people with PTSD and how they uh, kind of incorporate into work. And all of us after the pandemic, uh, when we go back into work, where we need to be incorporated for our uh, differences and diversities and mental diversity. So I think that kind of keeping in mind some of these uh, examples would be um, interesting to design for the better of all uh, different types of communities. Thank you. There are a couple in the chat um, about that refer to the pandemic, just as you have, but this one sounds like one for Richard. <laughs> how can businesses embed a culture that embraces diversity and how can they make allowances for different challenges and experiences that people might've had during the pandemic? So that's a great question. It's very, very current, isn't it? Um, uh, I guess for me, there's, there's something about embracing a culture of diversity. What I've seen is um, uh, 
many organizations and it's fantastic being committed to diversity um, but very often kind of stopping at the policy sort of level so we'll have a we'll have an edi policy and we'll look at utilizing our our um hr processes to attract and recruit people in and to get a, a balance a more balanced workforce that way but that's only part of the part of the uh the, the story really and so when you ask the question in better culture of diversity, where I go to is well, diversity is a fact. It's looking at the the, the numbers and you know the, the things that go around that. Um, whereas inclusion is an act, and that requires intentional actions, firstly by leadership to take the to take to take the lead and to show the way. Uh, often, as I said earlier, through those small little acts of um, inclusion. Um, some call it micro micro inclusions uh, as, as as part of that 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 give people a sense of welcoming and belonging, uh, but it's also then about encouraging everyone to take part to take part in that and to value that as something that will help teams to prosper and thrive for the long term. So there's definitely something about that because that will then create this sense of belonging for the long term. And the pandemic has really shone a light on this need to to for, for organisations to think about how people truly belong. Um, because when it when it kind of you know the the, the uh, you know the whole lockdown scenario sort of hits everybody and people moved away from their workplaces, be they offices or factories, shop floors, wherever they were working, into their kind of own home environments, that kind of like fragmented everything a lot. And so that sense of having a connection to a workplace was it was for many people was shattered. Um, but since then, we've seen some great examples of leadership taking the first step to help people to then reconnect with their organizations through people uh, as much as anything, rather than through physical workspace, because we're at home, right? And we're talking to each other through Zoom or through, through Teams. So it's just kind of re-emphasized the, the importance of the, these, these, these small acts of, of, of leadership kindness to, to, to then make the connections, uh, to build that sense of belonging and the encouragement then for team members to, to connect with one another. And I think that's got to be a kind of a, almost a leadership capability, a competency, if you like, that's got to endure uh, to make sure that, that that continues. And as people go back into the workplace, whenever that might be, and, and, and whichever means that might, that, that, that might, you know, shape that might take, then I think that that enduring capability of, you know, leadership helping people to connect with one another uh, and, and, you know, continuing that, that sense of, inclusion and belonging is going to be you know something that uh, that really really matters it's an enduring thing uh, that we're going to need so i kind of that's that, that's my view on quite a big question but a really really good one so thank you for that no oh, that was that was great we have another one for dr mike as well um there's been and it kind of segues as well there's been a lot of talk about hybrid working um i.e people splitting their time between the office and other spaces home coffee shops bars, you never know, libraries, <laughs> um, hotels. What do you think the greatest challenges with, with that format of work um, from an inclusion perspective? Yes, uh, Leslie, I have to admit that uh, I, uh, my internet was frozen through a part of that question. So, but I think you were referring to the hybrid work models. Yes, yes. Okay. So I will attempt to answer that. Yeah, I, I do think that um, the, the hybrid work models are very exciting and interesting. 
and uh, but also that they were also designed by uh, that that professional that higher end professional uh, class of people, and so my concern is that um, my concern with that is that it it becomes hybrid work and the technology required for it, and the complexity of it is going to be be unintentionally be like a moat put up around a castle, and the castle is the organizational belonging and and that some people who aren't as savvy with technology uh, or they or they don't have the transportation to easily travel between the satellite office and the headquarters and home and uh, the coffee shop and the co-working space uh, that they may be um, unintentionally uh, kind of sidelined from that corporate conversation and that sense of belonging and so uh, those hybrid work models again and I'm sure we are evolving towards some element of that, but we wanna make sure that we're not cutting people off too easily from building that critical professional network, that knowledge network, uh, that knowledge capital that they need to access to grow their careers and, and to you know, uh, excel at work. So awesome. well, what about um, already highly stressed people? What about veterans? Um, what about younger people? who, or what about 50% of us who are introverts, uh, all trying to play that complex game. I think we might have lost him. Just, oh. oh, okay, I'm back, boy. Uh, <laughs> maybe you just better, uh, I really apologize, maybe uh, move on to. We'll give it a second and we'll come back. How about that? Um, thank you. Priya? Yes, thank you. Um, the challenges of working remote. <laughs> We've all experienced it, but here's a, a perfect one for Priya. Um, and you referenced your frameworks and um, could you give us an example of how you envision that and what that would cover? Um, so for example, I'm gonna take, um, I remember when Dr. Mike was talking, he took the example of home. And I'm going to kind of take that uh, and reflect it back in a workplace. Uh, now, say people are coming back after a long weekend um, or a holiday or just, just even a weekend, actually. When they come back into work, they're in a completely different state of mind. And we're now going back to work after a pandemic. And so you can imagine the state of mind that we're all in, like very different. We're not used to going in every day. And when you go in, if you're bomb bombarded with, say, a meeting or your work desk and, you know, sort of uh, very corporate or hustle um, and bustle environment, I think people might be quite shocked and it might just induce a lot of anxiety. And this is I'm gonna compare it to a home uh, where you walk into anybody's home and you have sort of a you know living space and then you have a kitchen space and then you have your bedroom. So it, there's a segregation of um, how personal space and you know acoustics and, and experiences are built up. And I think you could have frameworks and design that supplement it and build up uh, workspaces uh, in layers where people say return to work, um, you know, in a layered format and there is uh, strategies and policies and the place itself is designed in such a way that you come in and you go through the space um, and you get the further you get the more entrenched you get in your work uh, rather than just being you know, thrown at it in your face. I, I don't know if that kind of, um, yeah, I'm just trying to attempt uh, to answer the question, Leslie. No, I think that I think that was a great explanation. And here's another one for Richard. Um, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, 
turning policy into action. How do you envision it? How do you think you could get an organization on board with this concept and make sure it's not just policy and no action? Because that does seem to happen a lot. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think there's, there's something about, um, I go back to the, to the notion that there's, there's, there's something really important about leadership, that it's got to count to them and matter to them. Um, and, and then quickly then it's about encouragement. So helping others then and, and the broader organization to, to build on that enthusiasm. But if you don't have that initial spark, it can be quite difficult. Wherever that stimulus may come from, and it may come from the, the front end of the organization, the front line of the organization, um, that there's maybe some energy there, but if leadership doesn't embrace it, it's not gonna happen. So there's something really critical about that. And my own experience of working in, you know, one of the organizations that I worked in was I could see that, you know, at an earlier stage, there wasn't that sense of, we must embrace this. It was more of a kind of a side issue for them to start with, but it became more and more obvious that the need for, you know, difference, particularly in that leadership team, of all kinds, of all kinds, you know, the, the, the more obvious and visible differences, but also the less visible differences around things like diversity of thought and diversity of experience was gonna to matter to create the agility in that team to cope with the increasingly complex and rapid demands that were being put on them by, in, in the case of the top team, the outside world. And they recognized that for the full organization to pivot more ably to increase challenges, You've got to do something that's, that's got to be different and, and therefore there's a need for diverse thinking experiences, skill sets to just to, to, to need to be brought in. So there's, there's something about how, how that, 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 that responsiveness is generated. And, and, and so there's a kind of a business case to it, but there's also a, as part of that, a need to create some excitement around it. So how do we not just see value, you know, differences as something that, you know, we've got to do it to, to tick a box because kind of everybody else is doing it. Or because you know when we look at the media, it's something we ought to be doing. It's got to be about you know how the organisation and its its kind of DNA wants to look at how it values difference, why it matters, and why how, how we can celebrate that. So some great examples I've seen again in, in the previous organ, the last organisation I worked for was how to celebrate things like religious festivals and, and get everybody involved in that and get everybody excited by it to, to appreciate the difference there how you could get into you know all kinds of different ways of inviting family into you know into the into the the, the celebration in the workplace to get a sense of difference there so i'd say leadership and then frontline and and you know what's the business case why it matters for pivoting for and for um and for responsiveness but also how you generate that sense of excitement so that it's something that's truly valid by everyone because that when, when it's in the heart of, of, of people uh, that's when it really takes off Richard, that's just really great. And I just have to jump in here because uh, everything that you're talking about has spatial implications. If you're going to have a culture that's bringing people's families in or bringing other sorts of celebrations in, that has spatial implications. And a traditional office planning model probably wouldn't accommodate some of the things that you're talking about very easily. So it really kind of drives back you know, to space and having flexible space, highly flexible space probably. Uh, giving people control over being able to reshape their work environment to accommodate these different events in a really seamless and fluid way. So it doesn't read like um, we can have this event. We're not really set up for it, but I guess we can make it work. Subtly saying, you know what, we really don't believe in this. And it, and it does. People, people pick up on that, right? You can make it work. But if you have a space that is really set up to accommodate these different sorts of 
um, inclusion activities and promote diversity of thought. I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing we really haven't talked a, a whole lot about, but uh, how can we have spaces that promote the diversity of thought and creativity and letting people from different backgrounds in the company run into each other? All of these have super fascinating spatial implications as well as, and also in the, in the, in the workplace strategy that you employ. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Sure. Me too. And here's, here's a good one um, that kind of fits in with all of this. I think maybe Priya, you might be just the person, but please, all of you chime in. Um, do you think the pandemic has changed the sense of belonging in the workplace? Why and how? And then I have another one. Let's start there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely. Of course, it's changed the sense of belonging because we don't sense of belonging comes from people and place and we don't really get to meet the people or be in the place. And I guess that's uh, it. It's absurd we're talking about, not absurd, but we're talking about diversity and inclusion when uh, we're in a pandemic. And I think it's it's really kind of important to address this. So when we go back, we can have the sense of belonging um, that we all don't, we have missed and didn't have even before maybe. And how has it impacted us and how um, is it going to change? I'll, again, I'm gonna take another example actually. Um, I remember when we were recording, I was uh, talking about this a bit, uh, where when I did my bachelor's, I did um, like a, um, my thesis on um, a sort of like a post-war rehabilitation plan and the strategy. And in that, uh, I was talking to some NGOs uh, about uh, like, you know, um, how they rehabilitate post-war. And I know we're not in a war, and this is a very extreme example, but we, we have been kind of you know, secluded from the whole world for a long time. So there was a sort of a camp um, somewhere um, outside of uh, Aleppo and they, it was summer. So they just kind of lived in a, a camp outside and they didn't really have any facilities. They had some water access, but not very much. And they had some food access, but again, not very much. And they started forming a community where some people cooked and some people cleaned. And, you know, they started forming a system of barter and uh, they, they just formed a whole community for like half a year or so. And uh, winter was coming up and the NGO obviously was scouting for places because they couldn't really live outside um, like that. And so they found um, an actual housing situation, a building with hot water and you know, a roof and everything. And when they said to the, you know, the camp, uh, the community that, well, we found a place for you and you can finally move into a building um, you know, for maybe a couple of years, uh, they were really upset and they didn't want to move and they put up a big fight and the NGO was obviously just like, what? I don't understand. Like we, we thought this is what you've been wanting for a long time, but that, that's the thing. They already had a community and for them to break it and again and again and again, keep moving and changing their sense of space. This, this wasn't the concept of flexibility we're talking about. This was just, um, I don't know, I was just giving them PTSD basically with the move again. And so, I think really involving the people, involving, um, maybe you can't involve each and every employee, but you could have, um, you know, um, a strategy or a platform where people kind of voice what they want, what the space they want is. Maybe some people want more flexibility, but maybe some people want more identity um, for the belonging. And it's really kind of important to understand that people come from a variety of walks. And can you imagine these people who lived in that camp coming to an office and working? And then you suddenly tell them they have to work in the likes of Google where everything changes. This table will become a flying banner. And I don't know, 
a meeting room tomorrow. So it, yeah, I think it's really key to incorporate the needs of um, your employees. Thank you. That is, that is a great take. And here's another one that's interesting. So how can building materials help increase legibility and inclusion? Can you give some examples and ideas? Dr. Mike, how do you feel about addressing that one? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I think that um, it is definitely possible to think about the, uh, the architectural materials that you're using, uh, using, uh, using materials of different types of materials in the interior uh, and or different colors. Um, so just for instance, um, you can create a sense of landmarks and a sense of place so that people can anchor themselves in the space that, that creates legibility by using different color carpet. So maybe one whole area that's maybe defined as a casual space has a different color, literally a different color and material of carpet or a different pattern. And then uh, also the main uh, pathways through the space, which are, which again, uh, you know, contribute to legibility, understanding the main and the, the main paths and the side paths, those could be carpet of a different color. It's sort of like a supersized landmark that helps guide you. Um, the actual materiality of the space, uh, the wall coverings could, could have uh, different colors to, to signify a different uh, area of the building and help you create um, kind of, again, it's sort of a, creates like a, a sense of a zone. So in your mind then, as you're trying to understand cognitive, your cognitive map of the whole layout, these bigger pieces act as sort of large landmarks or large zones within the space. So it's absolutely possible to do that. Um, even having a lot of glazing, a lot of windows along the, 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 on the curtain wall to give people visual access to the exterior of the building so that they can see landmarks, maybe another building that go, oh, I'm, you know, that tells you, oh, I'm on this side of the building. Um, and if you've ever been to the merchandise mart and tried to navigate in there, you, you can understand the impact of not having win window views to the outside to orient yourself. You have no idea where you are in that building. So it's, it's definitely possible to do that, um, you know, or punching a staircase through to connect two floors. Again, that's maybe that's not a building material, maybe it is, but it's, you know, it's an architectural feature um, that can, again, create a landmark, create a, create a place for people to, to connect and interact. So there's many things in that. I don't know, Priya, if you have any thoughts. Actually, I do, I do. Um, if I can just add. Um, so I think it's interesting to, um, kind of go back and understand people's thought process and what they connect to. And perhaps, especially, especially after the pandemic, it would be interesting to see what happened after the last pandemic we had, like influenza or cholera. And obviously after cholera, uh, people were obsessed with keeping their things clean and you know, modern architecture was on the rise and clean facades and surfaces. And one example of how um, building material um, changed uh, people's perception was um, there was modern, uh, like a California-based modern architect called Richard Neutra. And I think someone in his family died of influenza. And so he was really keen on like, uh, like almost obsessed with sunlight and making uh, natural ventilation available everywhere. So he built this, uh, he designed this sort of school where uh, you had natural ventilation and natural access to natural light in every room. So he, uh, at the time, of course, we didn't have a lot of glazing. We didn't have, like, you couldn't have glazing all over, uh, but with modern architecture started coming in. So he created uh, the whole building in such a way that each room had, um, you know, a whole wall that was just glazing and looked out. 
And it was uh, a, a real winner at the time. And I think it would be really interesting uh, if we went back to the work and everyone was allowed uh, to have spaces um, that interacted outside of the world. And even if they couldn't, uh, you could have natural materials inside to kind of ground you and uh, give it context. And, you know, just rather than having um, concrete and white empty surfaces, um, having more like, you know, earth and real contextual materials would I think really help sort of uh, make people feel comfortable. Great. And I think we're getting close to time, but there's one more um, that I think Richard would be great at addressing. Um, do you think that the term diversity is different for companies or that people think about it in the same way? Oh, that's a, that's a great question for a, a PhD thesis or something like that, isn't it? That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, this is personal view. I think that I think that it is looked at differently from organization to organization. There's some common themes around, I think, how people look at diversity. But you know, if I, if I kind of try and draw out a spectrum or describe a spectrum for you, I think there's some organizations that look at diversity as something that they feel under obligation to do, to tick some boxes, to show to the outside world that they're a, a good corporate citizen, if you like. And then, then, then you work through that to, to some of the, you know, the those organisations that have really leveraged diversity in the ways that I was trying to describe earlier. That it's not just about diversity in terms of the facts and the policies. It's about, you know, how how everybody embraces the value of difference and and looks to welcome and include that, so that it gives them a competitive advantage and just a sustainable organization, be it a business or whatever the organization is doing, um, because, because it has that strength in its difference. So I, I would say, yeah, there are, the, the organizations do look at it differently from that respect. And, and I think that, you know, for, for all of us here, it would be really be about, you know, what can we do to encourage organizations and leadership to move from that tick box sort of space that some may occupy at the moment all the way through to this more of an embracing of the more holistic approach that I think the better organizations look at diversity with. Great. Um, and there is one that just came through the chat. I think we can address it quickly before we thank everyone. Um, and it's to Priya. Um, in terms of inclusion and diversity in the workplace, do you feel there are any drawbacks to forced inclusion that you or others may have experienced? A Cho Chang or Parvati Patil of the workplace slipped in as a token display of diversity? Um, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if everyone got the Harry Potter references. I hope you did. Um, but uh, obviously, you have um, you have organizations time and again playing the diversity card to ensure that they cover all their bases. And um, I have to say that it's. Uh, is is it's quite a weird um, world where people are trying to. It, it goes back to my point of talking about intent and impact, and the intentions are in the right place where organizations are trying to show that they are being diverse, and maybe they're failing to really understand how they can impact uh, the right people and you know have the right opportunities. And I think maybe it starts from just a hiring uh, process where you don't know uh, you're ensuring that you're going above and beyond and hiring people from all kinds of bases. A good example is, uh, I remember I was talking to someone from Tetrapack and they mentioned that when they hire, they just hire based on time zones. So they don't really look at uh, hiring people from a particular location. So they don't go, we're going to hire someone for this particular qualification from Birmingham. So 
they really just go, this is the time zone we need. And no matter where they sit in the world, if it's South of Africa or Peru, or it doesn't matter, you know, Philippines, we just get the person to do the job um, in that time zone. So it's really interesting how you can just go above and beyond to ensure that you have diversity. But I think it's really uh, important that we don't just represent um, a key player to show for, um, show face and yeah, actually have diversity in our workplace. Thank you, because it is about community and people and belonging, and that's why we're here today. And I want to thank you, our panelists, for all of your time and willingness to, to contribute. It was wonderful. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us today. This um, webinar will be available for download by Monday, so you can rewatch along with um, key takeaways on The Great Indoors. But thank you again for your time and interest, and we look forward to our next panel discussion. Thank you. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.